We're going to read uh, Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 19 this morning. Uh, we've got a lot of work to do here, and I want to help you with this. It seems like a big chunk, and so this is how we're going to kind of break it down. We're going to really camp out in verses 1 through uh, 6, uh, excuse me, 1 through 10, and then in verses 11 through 19, they're really going to be just a support for us to tie everything together. But we're going to read it all together. Something that we do here at Redemption Hill is whenever someone reads the Word of God, at the end they say, this is the Word of the Lord. And all together we say, thanks be to God. Because we have not come to give something to God today. We've come to receive from Him through His Word and through sacrament this morning, both communion and today, praise God, baptism. So it's going to be a great day. Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 19. And he said, he being Jesus, to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and, you, and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you are commanded, say, we are unworthy servants we have only done what was our duty. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way, your faith has made you well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, when we come to chapter 17, uh, there's a few things that uh, we've got to unpack here. And the first thing is, when you just read it at first glance, it feels kind of like a proverb. Have you ever read Proverbs in the Bible before? And you read Proverbs, and it's divided into chapters, but each chapter has many different Proverbs, and when you read it, you're kind of going, okay, this doesn't, like, these things are kind of disconnected, and they're just kind of there, um, and so you're just kind of taking each individual thing as it stands on its own. And at first glance, it seems like that's what this is, and you could read it that way, but in reality, these things really are tied together, and I'm going to attempt to, my job today is to help you to see how those things tie together. Um, as we came to this morning, one of the things that I wrestled with is the knowledge that I knew there were going to be a lot of people this morning that would be visiting, uh, friends of Vince and his family and others that were invited because it was a baptism Sunday. And there was a part of me that was like, you know, 
maybe we should just take a time out from what we do on Sunday morning and I can jump to some really well-known passage of scripture and we can just unpack it and and that would be like a lot easier on me. It might be easier on you and uh, I really wrestled with that and I decided against it (laughs) because part of what we have really committed ourselves to is walking through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept. And so I was like, you know what? If you really want a good idea of what Redemption Hill looks like, you need to just jump in with both feet this morning. And so that's what we're going to do. And so I'm not going to really make an apology for that. I'm just going to let you know that's exactly what we're doing. And the reason we're doing it is because that's what we do. Next week, we're going to pick up where we left off, and we're just going to keep going. And, uh, and so I would encourage you to, to jump in with us, and, and it would be very life-giving for you. One of the things that we've found as we do this is even though we kind of plot it out best we can, okay, this week we're going to be doing this, and next week we're going to be doing this, and this is about how much we can get through in a week, we found that as we've done that, God has faithfully, through the word that we're going through together, brought up different issues. We've dealt with marriage. We've dealt with uh, lying. We've dealt with so many different things through these different passages as we've just gone line by line through the Bible, chapter and verse. And so the, tr- the same is true this morning. What we need to understand is what we have to draw from the context of this passage. And we get that in the very first verse of chapter 17. It says, And Jesus said to someone. Who did he say this to? His disciples. And so the first thing that we understand is that Jesus is talking directly now to his disciples. Now, in the last few weeks, we've read where Jesus was talking to his disciples and to the Pharisees. And so there were some nuances in what he was saying where things were being directly uh, related to the Pharisees and there were some things that were being directly related to the disciples. But here we see that Jesus now is in a different context and he's speaking directly to his disciples. And as he talks to his disciples, the thing that we need to recognize and affirm as New Testament Christians this morning is that whenever Jesus talks to his disciples in the Bible, who else is he talking to? Us, those who believe. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, that means that what Jesus says to his disciples in Luke chapter 17 also applies to you and to everyone else who believes, right? The We believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the church universal. So everyone who has ever believed and will ever believe in Jesus Christ, Jesus is, through this message to his disciples, speaking directly to us, okay? And so what that means is God is, through his son Jesus here, speaking to the family of believers about what it means to be the family of believers. We believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ creates a community that lives on mission. We are a family. When you are saved, when you believe in Jesus Christ, You don't just simply get a relationship with Jesus Christ that is strictly personal. There is a part of your relationship with Jesus Christ that is, yes and amen, personal. And that is a beautiful part of the gospel that we have a personal God. But it is not only personal. Because when we come to faith... We are also adopted into the family of God. God didn't just save you so that you could have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He rescued you from sin and death and from his own wrath so that he could adopt you into his family and call you a child of God, a son or a daughter in the faith. And so as we go here, we need to understand that what Jesus is saying in Luke chapter 17 applies to us 
as the family of God, as the community of faith, and he's unpacking for us what life in the family of God and in the community of faith is supposed to look like. And so from that vantage point now, we can begin to work through this and understand what God is saying to his church. And so through uh, these teachings uh, that Jesus gives to his disciples, these teachings are what are going to shape the disciples' theology. It's what's going to shape the apostles' community and the church community that's going to be birthed out of the apostles. And these things that Jesus says, Jesus promises in John 14, verse 26, that the Holy Spirit will remind them and bring to their remembrance everything that Jesus taught them. It's interesting as Jesus you know, teaches these things, it wasn't like the apostles were right there with pen and paper scratching everything down. Trying, Wait, what did he say? What? Hey, Jesus, can you repeat that real quick so we can get that down? Jesus actually promised in John 14 that the Holy Spirit, when he came, would bring to their remembrance everything that Jesus had taught them. And what he taught them would serve as a theological guardrail uh, or streetlights or signposts for them as Jesus used them to build his church. Uh, remember in the Old Testament in Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16, the psalmist makes this, this statement, and, and he sort of asks this rhetorical question that he answers. He says, how may a young man keep his way pure? Do you remember that? What does it say? It says what? By keeping it according to thy Word. How, how may a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to God's Word. And Jesus is the Word. He was the Word that was with God, that was uh, in the beginning, that all things were created through. And as Jesus comes and begins to declare the Word of God to his disciples, when it comes to us, how may we as the church keep our way pure? We may keep our way pure by keeping it according to the Word of Christ. And so these teachings of Jesus become uh, a way for us to know what our true north is. Do you know what true north is? When you're trying to make your way and you use the stars to understand and chart your course, you need a compass, you need to know what true north is so that you know where you are and which direction you need to go. The teachings of Jesus are for the believers our true north. They're what help us know whether or not we're coloring within the bounds of orthodoxy, within the bounds of what Jesus said. And that's why it's so important, so that we could know our right direction. This really is what is unpacked for us in Galatians and where we get the word orthodoxy. Uh, when Paul actually says that he had to correct Peter. Do you remember this? Peter's one of the disciples, Paul one of the apostles. And in Galatians, he says, and I corrected him to his face, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and he said to Peter, you are walking out of step with the gospel. And that's where we get the word orthodoxy from, that, that he was out of step from the gospel that he said he believed. He had got off course. And Paul was saying, you need to come back to center. You need to come back to true north. You need to come back into orthodoxy. And so the New Testament says that as believers, we should walk circumspectly. We should understand where we are going and what direction we're taking. And we should understand what the bounds of our faith or the boundary lines of our faith is. So how do disciples keep their way pure? They keep it according to thy word, according to the word of Christ. And the best way to do that is just to keep our eyes on Jesus himself, on who he was and what he did for us and what he said we should do. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 said that it says that it is by beholding Christ that we are changed from one degree of glory to another. It's why we've been walking through the book of Luke, so that we could look upon our Savior, we could look upon Jesus, and we could be changed from the inside out. 
So here we see Jesus in verse 1. What does he say? The first thing that he says. So he's giving us these instructions. And what does he say? He says, temptations to sin are what? Sure to come. Sure to come. You might inhale at that statement. Like, <gasps> but that statement should also cause you to exhale. <sighs> Why? Because what Jesus is saying is temptations to sin are sure to come. So in other words, when they show up, it shouldn't be a surprise. It shouldn't be a surprise. And that causes us to exhale. Why? Because Jesus is saying, get ready for it. It's going to happen. And it's okay. Like it's not okay to sin. But it's okay to understand that temptation to sin is sure to come. Temptation is coming. It's a guarantee. You know what else is a guarantee? That when that temptation that's sure to come comes, what also is a guarantee is that from time to time, we're going to fall to that temptation. I mean, all you have to do is, is look into the next few verses when Jesus says in verse 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So, so what's Jesus saying? He's saying that temptation to sin is sure to come. And guess what? You are going to sin. And, and you're going to be sinned against. And it's okay. That's why we say, and we, and we like to say, and we probably should say it more, that it's okay to not be okay. Like the church isn't a place where you should come and, and try to pretend like everything's good, like everything's okay. In fact, to pretend like everything is okay would actually be outside the bounds. It would be off-center. It would be out of orthodoxy. We should understand that Jesus here is giving us cause to exhale and understand that temptation to sin is sure to come and we will from time to time fall in that Am I the only one that falls in that, or are you guys with me there? Like, can we, just, can we just get real a little bit? Anyone here ever fall to temptation? Anybody? Right? Like, First John says, if, if you say you sin not, you call God a liar. And that means you've sinned and carry it on, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, comma, and are justified by his grace. Praise God. Yet we, we all sin and we all fall to temptation. And Jesus here is giving us cause to exhale and understand that within the community of faith, from time to time we're going to sin and even sin against each other. And that we should expect that. And in expecting that, we should then give grace to each other. Why? Because God in Christ has given grace to us. So this is what we affirm as New Testament believers and Christians, that when Jesus died on the cross, he died on the cross for our sin. And when he was buried and then rose from the dead, that he was raised for our justification. And what that means is every penalty of sin has been paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. And when he rose from the dead, it was as if Jesus, God was giving the receipt. Jesus stretches out his arms on the cross. He says, paid in full. It's literally an accounting word that was used on the cross. And when he rises from the dead, it's like God's giving the receipt. And he's saying, Yes, it actually was paid in full. And don't let anyone else ever try to tell you that you've got to pay for this again. That's why the resurrection is so important because he raised, he was risen, he rose for our justification. What is justification? That we stand before God righteous. Not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus did for us and on our behalf. And so, a righteousness, a foreign, an alien righteousness has been accounted to us, the righteousness of Jesus. And yet, here we are, still wrestling with sin. What, what do we do with that? Well, what that means is that what Jesus did on the cross paid the penalty for our sin. 
But every single day, we still live with the presence of sin in our life. Why? Because sin is not just the little things that we do that miss the mark. Sin is a condition of our heart because of the fall. And so even though Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin every single day until we gain heaven because of Christ's work for us, we will live in the presence of sin. And living in the presence of sin, it still has some semblance of power in our lives. And the process of sanctification is the process by which the Holy Spirit slowly over time, day in and day out, begins to weaken the power of sin over us so that as we journey through our lives, hopefully sin will have a little less power over us than it did when we first got saved. So we need to be able to live in that tension, and that's exactly the tension that Jesus is speaking towards in this when he says, temptation to sin is sure to come, and you will fall. Expect it. And know that I'm still God. You're still forgiven. Why? Because Jesus' blood didn't just cover your sins up until you believed. And now it's up to you to be perfect until he comes or you, go, you die and go to heaven. No. The blood of Jesus covers every sin, past, present, and future. Can I just ask you a question? How many of your sins were future tense when Jesus died on the cross? All of them. So do you think that Jesus can still cover your sins that are still future from today? Absolutely. If he can't, we're in trouble. He's not worthy to be called God, and we should just pack up and go home. But the reality is he is God, and he is powerful enough, and there is no sin more powerful than the blood of Jesus Christ, and the blood of Jesus Christ is powerful enough to wash away every sin. Though our sins were as scarlet, he shall make us white as snow. Amen? Purify us. Pure, holy, spotless, blameless because of the work of Christ on our behalf. So what do we do then? So Jesus is saying, temptation to sin is sure to come. You're going to sin. So what do we do? Well, what does he say? He says to then watch out. Keep a watch on yourself. So what we need to understand is like Sin in Genesis 4 verse 7, God says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you. You must rule over it. So often we think of sin and only think of it as wrong things we've done rather than as this sin-sick condition of our heart. Yes, there are sins that we commit or sins that we omit, but can I tell you what that really is like? It's like having a runny nose or an annoying cough, right? A runny nose or an annoying cough, what does it tell you? It's, an, it's a symptom of a deeper issue that's going on inside of you. It, it's an indicator to the rest of the world that you have a sick condition on the inside of you. And so when we sin, when we commit acts of sin, or we don't do what we should have done, which would be sins of omission, that's like a runny nose or a cough. It's an indication of a deeper sin-sick issue on the inside of us. And what we need to understand is that Jesus didn't come to deal with the little things that we do or don't do. He came to deal with the sin-sick condition of our hearts. Amen? And so we also need to understand that those things that we do do or don't do don't just affect the vertical relationship that we have with God, but rather, more importantly, they affect the horizontal relationships that we have with each other. It affects those around us, just like a, a runny nose or a cough can infect somebody else. Our sins and the things that we do or don't do affect the people around us. And we sin against each other. And Jesus is going to unpack this in verses 3 and 4. But let's camp out here a little bit. Because if Jesus says sin is sure to come, and temptation is sure to come, then we need to heed the warning and not ignore it. So there are two main ways that sin comes in our heart. Two root causes that are deep in our hearts that bring out these acts or omissions. And it's pride and idolatry. So two forms that sin takes in our hearts. So when it's pride, really what we're saying is, 
I, I know better than God. I don't care what the Bible says. I don't, I don't care what Scripture says my life should look like. I'm going to do things my way. And, and that is the sin of pride. And, and, and even pride in its own way is still idolatry. Because in pride, you may not be setting up something else as God and saying, I'm going to worship that. But really, who are you worshiping? Yourself. John Calvin would say that the human heart is an idol-making factory. The problem is, is that the idol we most manufacture represents our own image, doesn't it? And so one form that sin takes in our heart is, is pride. And in every act of sin or in every omission of sin, you can usually boil it down to these two things, pride and idolatry. So when we say that there is idolatry in our heart, what that means is that we are taking things, maybe even good things, most often even good things, and making them ultimate things in our lives. I mean, the truth is, and we talked about this in catechism this last week, the truth is most of us in here this morning probably will never deal with um, making cocaine or black tar heroin our God. I know I'm going out, I'm just going, it's a stretch, uh, but we are in Helotus suburbs of San Antonio, like I'm, I'm kind of, I know I'm going out on a limb, I'm not saying nobody in this room will ever deal with it, I'm just saying for the most part we can probably say hopefully none of us will ever deal with making cocaine or black tar heroin our God. And it's easy for us, then, to think that idolatry is only in those kind of situations where someone is so strung out or obsessed with something that, oh, they're, oh, they're worshiping that, that's idolatry. And we don't realize that in our own little suburban way, what we do is, is we make even really good things God. Our kids, our jobs, how much money we have in the bank or don't have in the bank. Those things that, that none of them are bad. None of them are evil. They're, they're, not even money is evil in itself. We've talked about this the last couple weeks. But it's when we take a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing that we de-God God in our hearts. And we begin to commit idolatry. And you can usually boil sin down to one of these two things. Romans 1, 25 through 27 talks about this when it says that we trade the truth about God for a lie and we exchange worship of the creator for created things. Pride and idolatry. And these are the temptations that befall us. And they come from three main places. They can come from inside of us. So our own sin-sick heart. Sometimes temptations to sin come from outside of us. And if you've ever, uh, I don't know what your background is. Some of you, you like came out of the womb singing hallelujah, okay? And that's fine, praise God. You still have your own sin-sick issues to deal with. And they are sick, and they are issues, and they need to be dealt with, okay? Some of you had a different path of life, and maybe you were out doing wild, crazy things, and God rescued you out of that. So some of you, God rescued out of Sunday school. Some of you, God rescued out of the party scene or, or a workaholic scene or, or whatever. And whatever the case may be, if you were in this place outside of the church, outside the bounds of faith, and God rescues you out of that, one of the things that you might have found is this temptation that comes from without where your buddies are, are like, hey, man, why, why don't you hang in with us anymore? And you're like, well, because I don't do those things anymore. And they're like, well, you don't have to do them. Just come hang out with us, right? And you're like, well, okay, that sounds good. And, and you go and you hang out, and then you wake up in the back of an El Camino. So um, nobody, nobody. Maybe I heard that somewhere. I don't know. Sometimes temptation comes from inside of us. Sometimes temptation comes from outside of the church. And if you ever have woken up in the back of an El Camino, praise God, His grace covers that as well, right? And, and what do you do in that moment? You allow your sin to lead you back to Christ. And you go, what am I doing? 
God, you rescued me out of this. Why am I back doing this? God, thank you. Thank you for your son. Thank you for Jesus. I confess, God, I I agree with you. What I did was wrong. Thank you for forgiving me and get back to it, right? But what does Jesus say here? He actually addresses a different place that temptation comes from. What does it say? It says, but woe to the one through who they come, for it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. And I think what Jesus is speaking to here is temptation that comes from within the church where teachers and let's just say false teachers are leading people astray from what the gospel and the simplicity of the gospel really is. Because who is Jesus referencing? Just a couple chapters ago, we saw that the Pharisees were up in arms because Jesus was hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. There were people who were very young in their faith, in following Jesus, and they were simply coming to him as they were, and Jesus was accepting them as they were. And here Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for them that a millstone be hung around their neck and they'd be tossed into the sea. Now, does that really fit with the peace, love, and hippie Jesus that you've been taught about? Because basically he just said, let's give them some cement shoes and toss them in the harbor. I mean, that sounded very like mafia-esque, right? I mean, that's essentially, you know what a millstone is? It's this big stone that's used to grind wheat. And let's just say, if anyone tied one around your neck and threw you in the sea, you're going to drown. Okay, so that's what Jesus just said. And when he says little ones here, there, there are times that Jesus talks about kids, but in this instance, he's talking about people who are young in their faith. They're immature in their faith, and, that, and that's not a slight against them. It's, it's just a reality, right? We don't treat two-month-olds the way that we treat 19-year-olds, right? And if a 19-year-old acts like a two-month-old, we've got a problem, right? Can I get a witness, anybody? Moms, if you have a 19-year-old, don't say anything, just smile and nod. Okay, all right. So sin comes from in. It comes from without. Sometimes it comes from within the church itself. And so what does this mean? Well, then Jesus makes a statement. What does he say? He says, pay attention to yourselves, Pay attention to yourselves. This uh, is, is, you can um, cross-reference this with 1 Timothy 4.16 when Paul says to Timothy, Hey Tim, <laughs> Timmy, watch out for yourself and your doctrine. Watch out for yourself and your doctrine. And what, what is Jesus saying here? He's saying you need to know what the truth is and what the truth isn't. You need to know what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't so that when people come and they try to teach you something, you know what true north is and you know when they're trying to lead you somewhere else. It's not enough to just take even what I say for granted because I am a broken individual, a broken human sinful person. And so you can't just take what anyone says. They say, oh, they're a pastor. Whatever they say, take it for granted. No. Make sure that you understand the difference between true doctrine and false doctrine. True teaching and false teaching so that you can know whether or not someone from even within the church is trying to lead you astray. So I ask you a question. How is your gospel fluency? Do you know the difference between good teaching and bad? Do you know what the gospel isn't? If someone was to try and tell you that the gospel was something and it wasn't, would you know the difference? It's important to begin to know. How can you learn? Well, that's part of why we've said you need to be reading your Bible every day. Get together with two or three other people a week and and talk about what you read in the Bible. Make sure you're grounding yourself to the word of God. Get involved in a missional community where you're not just coming on Sunday morning and hearing me talk, but rather you're in a place where you can talk and discuss and and learn in that way as well. 
You need to know the difference between what the gospel is and what it isn't. How else will you know if you are truly trusting in the right thing for your justification before God? So in this, Jesus says, temptation sure to come. It can come from within, it can come from without, it can come from within the church, and you are going to fall, and sometimes you're going to sin against your brother, and sometimes your brother is going to sin against you. So what do you do? And what does Jesus say? He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now, we could go to Matthew 18, and Jesus unpacks this in much greater detail, but usually we get hung up on the word rebuke. Because in our culture and context, the word rebuke kind of has a negative connotation. And, and we're very, 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 very passive-aggressive, aren't we? Because we've entered into an age where we can say everything we want from behind a, a keyboard and a glowing screen. And so upfront personal confrontation has become uh, something that we shy away from. I mean, public debate used to be a thing that was for the good of society. And even we have debates that aren't even debates anymore, right? And, and, and so we need to understand that Jesus is calling us to be a little countercultural in that when we sin against each other, we're supposed to, hear me, lovingly confront each other. Lovingly confront each other. Now, can I tell you something? There is nothing more unloving than seeing your brother or your sister fall headlong into sin. And just watching them do it. There is nothing more. Un well, how, how is confrontation loving? How You mean I'm supposed to confront people about their sin? Yes. Why? Because Jesus just said so. But won't that be uncomfortable? Probably. Especially the first few times that you do it. But how beautiful would it be to actually live in a community of faith that lived and walked this out in love? Something that we need to understand about the word rebuke, that one of the older definitions of the word rebuke is actually to give honor. To give honor. Why? Because again, there's, there's nothing more unloving or unhonorable than watching someone fall headlong into sin and just watching them do that. That's not honorable. You know, they, God rescues them at the end of it, and they come back, and they say, I wish someone would have said something. You're like, well, I, w I was going to tell you, but, you know, I figured you'd just figure it out on your own. Thanks a lot. Really? Seriously? Like, thanks a lot. Can I get a witness? Like, if you were doing something wrong, wouldn't you want someone to come along and say, hey, there's a better way to do this? Yes. Now, that doesn't mean we come along with our nose in the air and like, hey, brother, I uh, just want you to know that I'm perfect and you're not, and this is how I would do it, and you should do it this way too. No, that's not how you do it. But you come and you speak the truth in love. And when your brother or your sister is falling headlong into sin, and especially if they've sinned against you, you rebuke them in honor and with love. So what does that mean? It means you come to them privately, in person, not over Facebook, right? Not hashtag you sinned against me on Twitter, okay? You call them on the phone and you say, hey, we need to talk. Can we, can we grab coffee? Can we grab dinner? Why don't you come over? Can I come over? Let's talk. Hey, what's up? Look, I love you. And you're my brother. You're my sister. And this happened and it hurt me. And it didn't just hurt me, like I really feel like you're stepping outside the bounds here. And I need to tell you because I love you and ask you to repent so that we can reconcile and we can move on from here, right? Jesus says then, if your brother repents, what? Do what? Rub it in his face. No. What does he say? Forgive him. Forgive him. And in case we didn't get it, he takes it further. And what does he say? If he sins against you seven times in a day and repents, what do you do? 
forgive him seven times. In Matthew, Jesus says these same things, and, and you can tell that Jesus talked about this a lot because you hear you, Peter in that moment, it's, it's like he, he says, oh yeah, Jesus, and, and how many times should we forgive him? And he like looks at everybody and raises his eyebrows like, seven? And Jesus is like, Peter, you missed it. Seventy times seven. If you have to. In other words, without end, just keep on forgiving. And the, the purpose of rebuke is repentance. And if repentance comes, forgive him. But he hurt me. Forgive him. Why? Because God in Christ forgave you. And you are a treacherous, treasonous, blasphemer of God in your heart. And God didn't have to forgive you. But he did. And no one is ever going to be as bad to you as we have been to God. As God in Christ forgave me, I'm called to forgive others. Now, let's have a quick little talk about the difference between forgiveness and trust. They're different. And sometimes there are some sins that are so grievous that it destroys trust. And in that, it doesn't mean you don't forgive until trust has been restored. It means you forgive and then allow trust to be restored. Because the truth is, is if you haven't forgiven, trust will never be restored. Why? Because every time the flame of trust begins to flicker, you'll come and Stamp it out because you have unforgiveness and bitterness in your heart. And so you have to forgive so that trust can be restored. But hear me, if someone sins, even in the area of abuse or molestation, when Jesus says you must forgive them, that doesn't mean that you're allowing them intimately into your life. You need to understand that. Because there's a trust that's been destroyed there that needs to be built up. Now, can you forgive that person and still not trust them? Yes, you can. And you should. How, are you, how can I do that? Well, that's what the disciples kind of get to. What do they say? They hear what Jesus is saying. They hear how this community of faith, you mean temptation to sin is sure to come. We are going to sin. Not only that, other people are going to sin against us. And then in the middle of all that, you want us to like go rebuke each other, which is way uncomfortable. And then when they repent, actually forgive them. And Jesus is like, yes. And what do they say? With an exclamation point. What does it say? Increase our faith. Right? What are they saying? They're like, um, Jesus, this really feels impossible. And if it was all up to us, church, it would be. It would be impossible. But it's not all up to us, is it? And there's nothing that's impossible with God. And so what does that mean? What is Jesus saying here? Well, what does he go on to say? He says, if you even had the faith of a mustard seed and you kind of get the feeling that they're actually standing next to a mulberry tree, he's like, you could stay to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted into the ground. And some people are like, well, okay, so what? So mulberry trees used to live for like 650 years and they had this extensive root system that would go down deep into the bedrock and it was nearly impossible to uproot them. And anyone who's ever had to pull weeds says, amen, right? Like, if you've ever had that stubborn weed, like, this is nothing compared to a mulberry tree. But let's, let's even get to the heart of what Jesus is saying here. Essentially, what Jesus just said is, it's not about the size of your faith. It's about the size of the God your faith is in. It's, it's, it's not about coming here with some kind of measuring cup and trying to measure how much faith we have. It's about understanding that our God is so big and so great and so powerful and so awesome and so beautiful that there's nothing that he cannot do. And that's what we used to sing as little kids in Sunday school. And it's true. 
It's not just kids stuff. It's, it's the truth of the gospel. It's not about how big your faith is. It's about how big the God that your faith is in is. So we should forgive because God in Christ has forgiven us. And so Jesus then starts talking about how we can live in this community. And so this next part, again, it seems like it's disconnected, but I don't think it is. And so he tells a simple story. He says, which of you who has a servant? Now, can we just get real here? Um, We're talking to fishermen. We're talking to uh, guys who didn't have an education. And for the most part, with perhaps the exception of Matthew, who was a tax collector, probably none of them had servants. (laughs) So Jesus saying this is a little bit odd. But the implication becomes clear at the end. He says, which of you who has a servant who spends his day out in the field tending sheep or plowing the field? Now, anyone ever work with sheep before? They stink, all right? They really, really smell bad. And they're stubborn and they're dirty, okay? Uh, And anyone who plows a field understands that after you get done plowing a field, you stink and smell bad and get really dirty. And so the implication is here, the, the master doesn't say to the guy who's just come out of the field stinking and dirty, hey, why don't you sit down and have a meal with me, right? Two reasons. One, he's stinky and dirty. And two, it's still his job to prepare the master's meal first. That's part of his job. And so that's what he says. Why don't you clean up and then get my dinner together and bring it to me because that's your job. And what does the servant do? He does it. Why? Because it's his job. And the master doesn't come around later and go, wow, I mean, seriously, wow, thank you so much. I just, I can't believe you did that for me. Why doesn't the master say that? Because it's the servant's job, right? Now, most of us here, haven't had servants. I've been in a situation in my life and where I lived where I did, and it was a weird place to kind of be in because I'd never experienced that before. But I learned something very quickly. They have a job to do, and they do the job. And you don't come around praising them when they do the job. You come around praising them when they go above and beyond the job because they did something that you didn't ask them to do, right? And Jesus isn't making a case for being rude. And if you read this and you're like, oh, so I can just be rude to everyone, you didn't read the same thing that we read this morning. He's making a point about how we are supposed to live in the community of faith. When it comes to all this rebuking and forgiving and forgiving and rebuking, living in the rhythm of confession, repentance, and reconciliation, when we love each other well, we're not supposed to then pat ourselves on the back. We're not supposed to go around praising each other for doing it either. We're not supposed to go around accepting praise for doing it. Rather, what are we supposed to say? Jesus says it here. Me? I'm a, I am an unworthy servant. And I've only done what I've been commanded to do. Now, why would you need to say that? Because if you start forgiving people for the things they've done to you, it's going to blow their minds. They're going to go, what? What do you mean you forgive? Why? I know what I did to you. Why? How can you just forgive me like that? And you know what the answer is? Because God in Christ forgave me. Now, how are you going to remember that? You remember that by looking at this last story, and we're going to close here. Jesus tells a story about 10 lepers. Lepers were people who had the worst life of anyone in the New Testament. Literally, their appendages would begin to fall off because of their disease. Anything that stuck out from their body, use your imagination, that would go first, and their body would literally eat itself to death. And they were ceremonially unclean, which is why they stand afar off and they lift up their voices and, and, and they're letting Jesus know, hey, hey, we are unclean. And what do they say? Have mercy on us. And Jesus does. What does he say? He says, go present yourself to the priests. 
That was in keeping with Levitical law in the Old Testament that if you were cleansed, you had to show yourself to the priest so he should, could make sure that you didn't just clear up a little bit. You don't still have the disease and you're going to infect everybody else, but really make sure that you are truly healed and clean. So he says, go present yourself to the priest. And as they go, what happens? They see that they've been made clean. And one, a Samaritan comes back. Now, Samaritans were looked at as half-breeds. They were, their blood as Jews was diluted and the Jews were extremely mean. It's putting it lightly to the Samaritans. But do you know what else? That Samaritan who was going with the other nine Jews to present himself to the priest, he wasn't allowed into the temple. They would all been able to go to the temple together rejoicing because they were clean, but he would have got to the outer gate, and the outer gate would have said, foreigners do not pass here. And he would have been cut off from the inner court of the temple, unable to present himself to a priest until there was a priest who had enough of God in his heart, enough of love in his heart to quit his busyness and walk out of the outer gate and look at the Samaritan, the foreigner. And so on his way, I almost imagine that this guy started going, where, where am I going? Like, who, who am I going to present myself to? And these other nine guys that I had camaraderie with because there's no camaraderie like the camaraderie that's in the foxhole and doing life together. But now the one thing that bound us together, the only common bond we had was leprosy. And now to them, all I am is just another Samaritan dog. My community has been destroyed. Where, where do I go and what priest do I go to? And I believe that God did a work in his heart. And he began to understand that the one who was able to clean the outside of him was also able to clean the inside of him. That if there was one who was able to clean his outside, that he was a true priest to come and present himself to. And so what does he do? He comes and he throws himself at the feet of Jesus. Now let's ask the question, is that, is that biblical? You bet your britches. If we go to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, it says this about Jesus. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in a time of need. 